Everyone is looking for purpose, for a life that matters, and we want to be a church that helps people find that. This is the Collective Church Podcast from a life-giving and vibrant new church right here in London, Ontario. Here's this past week's message from our pastor, Tyler Fromm.
Well, good morning and welcome to Collective Church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the lead pastors. You got to meet Lee. We lead together. We're grateful that you are with us as we celebrate Thanksgiving. There's a passage in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says this, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we celebrate Thanksgiving that we would be thankful in all circumstances because you are with us. You do not promise that everything will be easy, but you do promise your presence. I pray that in this space that you would speak to us individually. You know where we are. You know what we've walked in with. You know the baggage that we're coming in with, and you don't ask us to pretend like it doesn't exist. You ask us to lay it at your feet. God, in this moment, I pray that you would speak through me. God, whatever you want to say, we give you permission. God, I need you. We need you. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in this series called Real Community, the way of Jesus for life together. And today I want to spend some time talking about the idea of community around a table. Community around a table. My mom is in the room today. And so uh, my my mom's over there, so just give a little wave. Everyone can look. This is my mom. Okay, my mom, growing up, has done a great job of creating meaningful moments around a table, that we would spend time eating and feasting together, that that is a significant part of our life. When I was, uh, I think it was in my early 20s, I won this draw to get a free turkey. And, and if you're like me, you go, you get a free turkey, I go into the butchers and like, what size of turkey do you want? I'm like, I want the biggest one you have. And so I got, was it 40 or 45 pounds? 40? 40 pound turkey. Now just imagine a 40 pound turkey. It was the, like it was a lot of, it was hard to get my arm around. And I was living with my other aunt and uncle at that point. I come home and my aunt goes, why did you get a turkey that big? And I was like, oh no, I messed up. I shouldn't have got this turkey. I thought it was going to be awesome. I call my mom and she's like, we're going to have to get a bigger pan, but we'll figure it out. It'll be great. I was like, yes, we knew how to eat in our family. And part of the thing that the table became a significant part of what we did for family gatherings because my grandparents modeled it. Her parents, my my grandparents, they they did family table. And and it got to the point where we outgrew one table, so then a bunch of us, and we all became like six feet tall, gathered around this little tiny card table by the bathroom that people had to kind of shuffle through. That was the kids' table, even though we were bigger than many of the adults. We got the, but it was always around a table. And it was a significant part of our life. But we also, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And there was a significant shift, maybe you're familiar with it, called the TV tray. Anyone in here still rocking the TV tray? Okay, I remember when we upgraded our TV tray. We went from these, like, I don't know, the ones we had were maybe from the 60s, 70s, I don't know. But they were like the ones that clipped in, they were the metal kind of. And we upgraded all wood ones. Ooh, they are fancy. I think, I think we got them in the Sears catalog. It was like, <laughs> yes! And I remember. Now, I want you to think about what that does culturally. You go from these moments that we gather around a table looking at each other to now sitting in your lazy boy chair and couch facing what? The glow of the TV. And so these moments where, where we used to gather around and now we're sitting in front of the TV. 
And it's easy to look at that backwards and go like, oh, that was an interesting moment. But if you think about 2022, we perfected that. Because now we don't just have an individual table, we also have individual TVs. We sit with each other in restaurants, maybe even present with each other. And what do we do? Sit on our phones. It's not just one TV that we gather around. We each have little devices and we sit on. And we see it all the time. I go to grocery or go to restaurants and you see people, like Lee and I were in Portland a few weeks ago and we saw people on dates. No joke, sitting around tables, both on their phone. How do you think that date's going? Not so good. And I, I think about this move away from time that is communal and I just, I don't think we're better for it. I don't think that the times that we spend around each other and not present are not actually making us better human beings. And if you hear nothing else, I believe that the gift of being present with people is especially important in 2022. Because there is so much distraction, there are so many voices that are telling us you're not valuable, you should be this, you're comparing. If we are present with people, if we sit around a table and put our phones away and actually communicate that they are more valuable than whatever's going on, we communicate that they are important and we demonstrate God's love to them in a way that is tangible. So if you hear nothing else, put your phone away. Be present with people. Because it is a gift to people that we actually are present with them. I'm telling you, increasingly, it is, less, it, is, it is less common. And so when we do it, people notice. But think about the, the move that we've had to where, towards individual expression or individualized experience and distraction. It's increasingly led us away from more weekly time gathering around tables with people. We spend less time around tables with our friends or if we do, we're on our phone Less with our neighbors, less with our coworkers, less with people that don't think like us, vote like us, look like us. It's so easy to live in our own little myopic place. And I just, spoiler alert in case you're wondering where I'm going, I don't think we're better for it. I don't look at that and go, man, this is really helping us to become better human beings, followers of Jesus. I don't believe that this kind of way of living is forming us into the image of Jesus better. Because the truth is, if you think about your life, you are always being formed into someone. All the things that are around you are shaping you and forming you, and so you need to be thinking about the inputs in your life and the experiences and how they're shaping you. Are they shaping you to become more like Jesus or less like Jesus? And I think this weekend is a perfect time to reflect on this. This weekend is a unique one where most of us, many of us, are going to gather around a table and eat together. We're going to feast together. We're going to have to loosen our belts together. We're going we're gonna to eat some food, and we're going to celebrate this gift of gathering around a table. Many of us sitting around tables talking about what we're thankful for or reflecting on what we're thankful for. Time with our family and our friends where we are filled up relationally. Unless you're an introvert, and then you leave the Thanksgiving table going, I don't need to see people for two weeks. But it fills up that tank there's something special that happens when you're looking face-to-face -face with each other. And can I just be honest? We also might have some lively discussions around the table, right? You're around the table and someone says something. You're like, I don't think that's true. And then things get a little feisty and fiery. I'm sure no one else can relate to that. And you have these discussions, but have you ever noticed the difference of working out some of that around a table looking face-to-face -face versus on a device? 
It's a lot harder to say nasty things when you're looking into someone's eyes than it is to post it. More on that in a future week. But I notice the gift of being around a table as we work through challenges, as we, as we actually spend time together, and I think it, it helps us. It's good for us. We sit around tables, we eat food, we tell stories, and, and we walk away hopefully encouraged. And I wonder if a weekend like this, like Thanksgiving, actually speaks to something deep inside of us, something that God has put there, this, this need for community, real community around a table, that a weekend like this is actually a celebration of that. Now, even just uh, if any of you are new to Collective, it's also why we've redesigned our co-groups. So you might know them as groups or small groups. It's our smaller gatherings that meet in homes. And we've actually made a table and made food a more central part of what we do. Because we think, like in our case, there's a couple of co-groups that's like 17 people. You can't, no one has a table that big. But it might be a coffee table in the center. And we gather around it as equals, learning together, co-learners as we spend time together and we eat together. That's a, a part of every single co-group. That's intentional. Because we believe that that's an important thing for human beings, especially given all the other things around us that we do together. We believe that community happens around a table. And increasingly, as we look at the way of Jesus for life together and for our lives, we increasingly see this centrality of a table. We see how significant this is to our life, to our faith formation. In fact, we see it in the early church. There's a passage in Acts 2 where, where we find the early church. This is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And we're learning a little bit about the community that's formed in the wake of Jesus. Acts 2, 44 says this. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. This morning, I want to put the table at the center and I want to approach this idea of community around a table in three different ways. So I'm going to put it on the screen so you can actually track along with. First is around formation. How are we formed? And that's family around a table. I want to talk about that. Second is celebration, communion around a table. And third, mission, an open table. Now typically when I would preach, I tend to take one chunk and unpack it. But I'm going to hop around a little bit. Because I want us to understand this idea and concept because it's important certainly to us as we lead collective, but to the future of collective church. Formation, celebration, and mission. As people, we are formed by the stories we tell, by the stories that we live, by the things that we tell ourselves and actually believe. We're formed by what we celebrate and what we focus on and what we share. All the inputs, all the outputs, they shape us and form us into people. And the time around a table is incredibly significant to that end. 
to forming us to be people that more and more reflect Jesus. There's an author named Leonard Sweet who says this, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. So a faith that does not have a table gathered around a table, community around a table, moments of celebrating and eating and feasting is actually an unstable faith. And pastorally, if I was to reflect on three years, I would see that played out. I would see the impact it has on people not actually eating with each other, looking at each other face to face, and what it does to your faith. An untabled faith is an unstable faith. But I want to also let you know that's not just theologically true. We can learn things and go, okay, the Bible says that, and, and maybe I believe it, but I don't, I don't know. And, and what I, I've shared in previous sermon series that I think is important is oftentimes secular research actually is catching up to the Bible. There's things that we find out, and, and uh, people that are researchers are like, we learned this brand new thing, and you go, no, actually, that was in the Bible a long time before that. And, and this idea of table and the significance of gathering on a table is actually something that researchers are increasingly going, this is important. In fact, there's a, a guy named Cody C. Dillistrati, and he did an Atlantic Monthly report where he did a massive survey, and here's what he found. The number one factor for parents raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, and kind human beings, frequent family dinners. Number one factor. So kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, and kind human beings. This is a non-Christian study. Okay, second thing, the variable most associated with lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18-year-olds, frequent family dinners. So you have secular education that's saying, okay, frequent family dinners, this time around a table is actually forming children and people really well. And yet what's actually happened is that increasingly we're doing that less and less. The average family dinner has moved from 60 years ago. was 90 minutes. You know how long it is today? On average, 12. Now, there's a part of me that goes, 12 minutes, like that's so sad but I also have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. <laughs> and there are moments that 12 minutes is about all I have. And I'm like, Lee, it's on you now. You're up. Because uh, they, like, listen, I'm, Lee makes, like, if Lee's making food or I'm making food, we eat well. And I want to enjoy it. And when every 37 seconds, I'm like, please, please just eat your food. Please just put it in your mouth. I don't care. You liked it yesterday. Please, please just eat it. And they're like, I don't want this now. It tastes weird. Like almost inevitably, and I think it's mostly Parker at this point, his first words out of his mouth to Leah, she's made something, put it in front of him. Usually it's something that she's thought, like, I don't really like this. And they're like, listen, jerk. And so, and so honestly, I got a few minutes where I'm like, I can handle some of that, and my kids are also, they're passionate kids. I have no idea which parent they got that from. And so my kids are passionate, and when they tell stories, hands all over the place, they're also clumsy. And so usually it's about 12 minutes in that one of them has spilled water. Usually it's ended up on my lap, and I'm like, I'm out! I'm out! I'm going to go eat in the living room by myself. I'm going to turn music on and try to hide and pretend that they don't exist. Okay? 12 minutes. 
But this is why for me as a parent and us as individuals, we have to always think about long haul because if we focus on the short term, we get stuck in some of those things. We go like, oh, it's frustrating and it's irritating. But if our goal as parents is healthy, well-adjusted kids that love Jesus, then the best gift that we can give to them is to be present for frequent family dinners. To spend time with them and to actually go, okay, long term, it's worth the sacrifice in the short term. And culturally, we get this tension because we want instantaneous, right? I want to know that if I'm going to do that, I want kids that are healthy and well-adjusted and hopefully drug-free. I want that. But sometimes the disconnect between what we want right now and what we're willing to invest in long term is, is significant. And so that, that, that long perspective and yet the daily decision to go, we actually are going to be a family that eats together and spends time together. This messy table has to be central. I need to have more family meals. But you also need to have more family meals. And it raises the question, because we have people from all different stages of life in the room. So we have some people that uh, they don't have kids or they're single we have some people that have kids that have their own kids and they're not around. And so it, it helps us to think, okay, so if we actually are finding that according to studies that family dinners, frequent family dinners actually have a, a formative effect on people and their well-being, we need to be thinking, what does it look like to have more family meals? And then it causes us to go, but what does family mean for us? Because for some of us, it's our biological family, but is that all it is? Is it just a bunch of our families hanging out, closing their doors, locking their doors, not inviting anyone else? Is that, is that the goal? Is that what's going to help and shape and form people to become more and more like Jesus and to be healthier and to not struggle? As, is that it? Well, the reality for those of us that would call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus is that we become a family under God. That we are sons and daughters in a family that God has created. We are adopted as sons and and daughters, and this is not based on our blood, this is based on something so much better than that. Ephesians 2.19 says, so now you Gentiles, that's anyone who is not a Jewish person, are no, and that's most of us, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens, citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Now can we be honest? Because I know many of you in the room, many of us have jacked up families. Like our biological families, they're messy. We love them. Sometimes we're not sure if we like them. Sometimes we're not sure that we want to be around them. For some of us, we've experienced real hurt, real disappointment, legitimate abuse. And for some of us, this idea, so you can hear someone saying it with two little kids that are somewhat tyrants but still fairly lovable, and you can go, he's saying family dinners are great, but have you seen my family? Have you spent time with my family? This is why, as the church, we desperately need to get it right to actually think about family as a whole. Not blood family, spiritual family. Now, does that mean we will be perfect? Not even close. Does it mean that sometimes that we will have tension? Absolutely. Welcome to family. It also means that we fight for each other. And it means that when we fight with each other, we also fight for reconciliation together. Now, are we a perfect family and will we be a perfect family? No, but will we be people that continually grow in sacrificial love for each other? Absolutely. We have to, as a church, actually embody 
a family. Because there are people all around us that have not experienced family. And some of us have, have all sorts of baggage, but God is inviting us into something more where we can represent hope and healing for others. Family meals matter. Family meals where we put others first can actually change people's lives. Where we tell better stories, where we celebrate bigger wins, or we cry and we weep with people, we can actually be part of changing people's lives. As we are shaped more and more around a table to become like Jesus, we can see it making a difference in others. And so this Thanksgiving, as you gather around a table, biological or not, I want you to know that what you are doing matters that it is significant that you are creating a holy moment where people together can gather and you can tell a different story. That you can redeem and restore some of the things that are broken in others. You can create moments where God can move and heal and restore. We are formed around a table. I said the three angles of community around a table, formation, family around a table, and the second is celebration, communion around a table. Communion around a table. Now, when I say communion, some of you know it as the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or maybe by another name I'm not familiar with. Communion is this idea of gathering together. Typically, if you're from our tradition, it's with a small, increasingly gluten-free cracker and a small, always Welch's grape juice. It's like <laughs> Welch's grape juice, there's some fond memories there. And so it's this little tiny thing, and we, and we take it, and why do we do it? We, we take this. It's one, of the, it's one of the things that we do as Christians that makes us unique. We take it, and the cracker represents Jesus' body broken for us, and the, the cup represents Jesus' blood poured out for us, and we take it in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. It's a significant part of what we do as a church, and we oftentimes do it in this really quiet and somber way, right? It's really silent. And I had one time with, with Lee that I was at a church that she was at and I accidentally did it. I accidentally did it in the wrong order and then I'm trying to hide as they're, they're like, everyone come to the front. And I'm like, oh no, they're going to see. Like you have these moments, especially if you come into a church that you're not familiar and you're going, how, do, how does this work here? And it's everyone's really quiet, so you're really hesitant to go, what do I do? right? It's very calm and somber, but you know that if you actually look at the early church, it wasn't always this way? In fact, that passage that I read where it says in, in Acts 2 verse 46, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Okay, so the early church when they took communion, Lord's Supper, as they mentioned, when they did it, it was part of an actual meal together. It was a celebration. In fact, they called it a love feast or agape feast. Love feast sounds kind of strange if you're like, come over for our love feast. You're like, no, thank you. I'm busy. I'm busy. Agape feast, you can hide because they're like, I don't know what that means, so sure. But they did this feast together. And I want you to picture in contrast to this quiet where we take a little cracker and we sip a little juice and we go, okay, God. They gathered around tables and they ate well and then they celebrated what Jesus had done for them. 
This was a significant moment. And what's so cool about it is it also represented a, a gathering of disparate people. So we are ultimately so much, there's so much division. But what something like a love feast did is it brought people, rich, poor, slave, master, all of it, together around a table to celebrate what Jesus did. To do that together. And so suddenly people that have so much, they bring it all. And people that have very little are able to feast. Like maybe eat for the first time that week well. It became this uniting, uniting moment and space for the early church. It was a significant thing. And I look at what the New Testament shows and I look at some of that, the stories of the early church and I think we've missed something. It's not to say that the cup and the cracker is not significant, it is, but, but we don't do the celebrating well enough. We don't do the gathering well enough. It's usually like we have a couple people in a line come up to a table and quietly do it individually. And I think some of this individual move, we need to be thinking more communal. We celebrate together. We celebrate communion together around a table. And I want you to notice where it's happening. It's not like we have it where it's happening in the temple, on the church service. According to Acts, it's happening in homes. And so even in co-groups, we're, we're rethinking that and actually implementing that. We're going, okay, what does it look like to actually do communion in homes and eat together? And so this week in our co-groups, you're going to get to do that. We're going to feast a bit, celebrate a bit, and really celebrate what Jesus has done for us in our co-groups because we think it's really important. We don't want to just say the table is important. We don't want to just say that celebration and communion around the table is important. We want to live that out. We want the, the disconnect between what we say and what we do to be as small as possible. So around a table, we're, we're formed. There's formation, family around a table, and we celebrate. There's communion around a table. We can do all of that and miss the third piece that I think is so important we see modeled in Jesus, and that is mission, an open table. You want to know how Jesus often won people over? He usually was eating with them. There was usually a table involved. So much of the time that he spent with other people that did not think like him and eventually gave their life over to him, it was around a table. In fact, he gets accused of that by other people if we find it in the New Testament. In Luke 7, verse 34, it speaks to the centrality of, Jesus, of the table in Jesus' life and ministry. And so Luke is capturing this conversation between Jesus and some people accusing him. And Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to the home and sat down to eat. Now, I don't want you to miss this. So Jesus is feasting and he's drinking to the point that everyone knows about it. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees at the time, they have a problem with that. They're accusing him of being a glutton, of being a drunkard, of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners, eating with them together. And that is a problem because they're looking going, you're not supposed to do this. You can create a table, we're kind of okay with that, if it's with people that think like us, look like us, believe like us, and do what we do, vote like us, we're good with that. 
But this idea that we're actually going to feast and drink with people that are not like us is a problem. And it's the ultimate irony that even at the end of all that, they're accusing him, who, who he, that he's a drunkard and a glutton. And then the one Pharisee is like, do you want to come over and eat with me? And when Jesus goes over to his house, surprise, surprise, a sinful woman shows up and her life is changed, all because of an invitation to be around a table. The table becomes an invitation for hope and for healing. There's a, an author named Jean Leclerc that says this, Jesus ate good, good food with bad people. Another theologian, Robert K. K. J. Karras said, Jesus was killed because of the stories he told and the people he ate with. Because what Jesus was doing was dangerous. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and he was also spending time eating with the people that least deserved that person. The, the, time, or the, the time that he spent with people that, that everyone else is going, they don't deserve to be around you. And so he spent his time with those people, the people that were on the fringes and claimed to be the Son of God. This was dangerous. This was a problem for the religious leaders at the time. And Jesus is being accused of being a glutton and a friend of sinners. Now I want you to reflect in your own life. I want you to think for a moment. When's the last time you were accused of this? When's the last time that some religious people or church people said to you, I can't believe you celebrate as much as you do? I can't believe you eat like you do. I can't believe you welcome people into your home. Don't you know who they voted for? Don't you know what they believe? You brought them over? They're not even Christians. When's the last time you were accused of that? Because I think there's a disconnect. Because some of us, we go, I like comfort. And I like my nice, comfortable I, table. I'm okay with family table. I'm okay with that. But this idea of an open table, we go, I don't know. And I think if we want to look more and more like Jesus, it probably makes sense that we would be accused of some of the same things he was. Accused of being people that celebrate with others that, that shouldn't be there and don't belong based on whatever criteria. Instead, instead, we become people that invite others into our homes and we represent something different. Like, we can't talk about being polarized and divisive and not represent a counterculture. We can't go, you know what, like everyone's so, when's the last time you invited people over that think very differently than you and you actually fed them well? Like, it's easy to say it. Oh, I'm so bothered by that. It's time for us to actually model that and live it out. And so we see this in Jesus, that he actually creates this space for a table. Even if you think, think about the, the Last Supper, the, the table that he had where he was with his disciples. If you think about the 12 people that were part of his, that were part of his group, you have, you have one guy who is Simon the Zealot. He's a religious terrorist. And then you have a tax collector. Do you think maybe there was some tension and yet, what does Jesus do? Welcomes them around the table. People that should not get along instead are united by who? Jesus. This should be us. And I want you to think about Jesus' life. If you're not familiar with him, it's, it's important for you to know, Jesus walked everywhere. He was never in a rush. I don't know if anyone in the room could go, yeah, that's me. Because so many of us in 2020, we're always rushing and we're going... He, he was never in a rush. He walked everywhere, and yet he always had time for people. He always had time to eat and drink with them. He celebrated with others. 
And I want you to circle back to Acts 2 that I was reading, and I want you to think about the community that he left by the way that he lived. Acts 2, 46 to 47, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Now notice the last verse. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Do you want to know how the early church grew the most? Like, it's really fascinating when you think about it. The early church, if you were a Christian, you, you legitimately faced not just persecution, but could face death. So if, like imagine in 2022, if following Jesus actually meant you could die, do you think the church would grow or the church would shrink? And yet, the church at that time didn't just grow, it grew explosively. Why? How does a church in a scenario where it is not just difficult to follow Jesus, it could cost you everything, how does it thrive and grow? Because they couldn't rely on big programs, outreach events. They couldn't do big things. They couldn't put stuff on social media. They couldn't do any of the stuff that sometimes we can rely on to think this will be the secret thing that fixes everything. They couldn't do any of that. Do you know how they grew? They actually invited people who were not Christians into their homes. And over time, had conversations with them and shared about this man named Jesus who had changed everything for them. And you know what happened? Millions of people came to faith. So much so that the Romans, the occupying force, actually went, so it was illegal to be a Christian? They're like, well, this is a problem because there's now more Christians, like the percentage-wise, millions of Christians. Like, there's a lot of Christians. And so they got rid of the restrictions on Christianity because they're like, there's too many of them. Now think about even where we are in 2022 and the invitation that is for us to be the kind of people that open our homes to people that don't think like us, look like us, vote like us, believe like us, and to see the difference that that can make in their lives. It worked before, and I'm convinced that God is, is inviting us to go back and to look and going, why are you complicating this? But some of the reason we complicate it is because we don't like what it means for us is we go, wait a second, so I can't rely on the professional Christian to just do all the work? I can't just show up to church, check the box, and go, so you got this from here, right? I actually have to open my house, open my home, become someone that embodies radically ordinary hospitality, and I can't just do hospitality for people when I have like a beautiful spread. I also, when I just pull together some craft dinner, invite people over. Like, it causes some things in us because we go, wait, 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 are you telling me I'm responsible here? Yep. And I think that this is the unique moment that we are in that, is, that I do not want us to miss, where God is moving it instead of being a couple people on a stage to a, an army of people in their homes. To actually be people that embody this, that to go, come in, come in, let's eat together. We, Lee and I, as we launched co-groups, we're, we're uh, leading an alpha co-group. And, uh, and, and we, before we start, we usually eat for a good solid hour. Lee made this dip last week that had bacon and cheese. It was amazing. And, and, honestly, and honestly, it's one of my highlights of the week to sit around with this group of people that I've come to really love spending time with. And I think, what if, what if we did that more? Like, what if we were people that our homes became actually places of a, a, a haven, not just our walled-off castle that we just do our own thing? 
Is it possible that in this season that God's actually inviting us to, as I say every single Sunday, be the church? I think that we need to be a community that rediscovers community around a table. So I want to circle back to the three things. First, formation, family around a table. Second, celebration, communion around a table. And third, mission, an open table. Now, you might hear all of that and listen to me and you hear bits and pieces, but you might go, what do I do with that? Now, I'll suggest what I think you should do with it, but, but I also want to give some space. I want to give some space and an invitation, even in quiet, to reflect and to ask God, God, what do you want me to do with that? But before I do, let me just, let me just suggest a, a couple of things. Maybe it's the, the first one where you go, I, I need to spend some time developing family around a table. And maybe you've done it, like you, like me, you have little kids, and you've kind of figured out a bit of a dynamic with family, but you need to actually be thinking about family that's not just yours. Like, we have a bunch of students that are part of Collective. We have a bunch of people that are single, that live by themselves. I want you just to think for a moment. Put yourself in their shoes and think how significant it would be for a family to say, do you want to come over and eat with us? To see the mess. To see your kids that don't behave like perfect little kids. To see a marriage that is not perfect, but is a real marriage that is trying to figure out how to follow Jesus together. Think about the impact they would have to say, I want to be the kind of person that has family meals and I want my family to be big and different together. Because I think for some of us, we get really, really comfortable in our North American way of going like, I'll do family, family meals, my family. And God's going, no, 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 my family, my family over. And maybe the second thing is the communion around a table. You go, yeah, that sounds like a better picture. Join a co-group because you've got to do it. In fact, you could do two birds, one stone. Go to the co-group. You can do family and celebration all at the same time. If you want to join a co-group, you can go to collectivechurch.ca slash co-groups. Or you can go to Next Steps. But the third, I think, is the one that we really, really, really need to grow in. And not just say. Like, I think it's really easy. You hear some of that or you hear vision. You're like, yeah, we should have open tables next year. In January, I'm willing to do it. You know what? When I get a home, then I'll do it. When I get married, then I'll do it. When we have kids, then I'll do it. Well, when my life gets less busy, then we'll do it. We have to leave those excuses because we're always going to find one. Can you imagine? Right now in London, there are almost 500,000 people. The most recent census is why Lee and I moved back to London was that over 100,000 people said, I have no religious affiliation. Okay, so this is not just people that are nominal Christians or don't believe like we do. This is, this is people that say, I have nothing. Now, that number is way, way, way higher. But I just want you for a, a minute to imagine 100,000 people that don't yet know Jesus. Now, are we going to reach them by planting a church or a couple churches that are 100,000 people? No. But imagine 1,000 homes with a table filled with people that are coming to faith. Imagine like the early church, the conversations that each of you have with your coworkers and your friends and your family that you could have in your home. Imagine the impact that that would have. Imagine the people that would come to faith because you were willing to say, come over, and they're going, I don't get invited over. I, I don't normally feel like I belong, and we get to communicate something differently. 
I am more and more convinced that the future of the church is a shared responsibility by all of us. That each of us have a responsibility to recognize that we are placed on purpose, for a purpose. And when you think about a number, 100,000 people, I don't want you to think about the number. I want you to think about your friends and your family. Like I, I, have, I have family that their lives have been changed because other Christians in other communities cared too much to make it about them, that they made it about Jesus and changed lives. I have friends that have people around them that are not Christians, that are not me, the professional Christian, that found Jesus because a community was unwilling to be selfish and, and just about me and instead to be a community that thinks about others. I want that for us. And I don't just want to say that to you and go, you should do that. I want you to know we want that for us. We are in it with you, all for it. We're inviting our neighbors over and spending time. We go, we're fighting for that. Let's be the kind of community to do that. I want to invite you. Would you stand up with me for a moment? Okay, so we're going to do something. I want to just create a moment of, of quiet. So I want you just to close your eyes. And I want you in a moment of stillness to just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? Like, what are you asking me to do? What does it look like for me to, to embody community around a family? What are you inviting me to do? And we're going to do something that's going to feel very foreign to many of us, and we're going to create actual moments of stillness and silence. Because we all avoid it with all sorts of noise. Then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and then we'll respond in worship. I want to pray for us, and then let's, let's worship. God, I pray that you, would, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us in representing your family, your community, that we would be a community that would not just think about us and our own preferences and our own space, but instead think about the people that you love, your sons and your daughters that are not yet found. God, we need you. Guide us. As we, as we live this week, would you speak to us and challenge us and help us to become people not that just live with insight, but instead to have lives that have been changed by action. God, have your way. We love you, we trust you, and we desperately need you. Pray all these things in your holy and precious name. If you'd like more information on Collective Church, find us on social media at This Is Collective Church or reach us on our website, collectivechurch.ca. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you Sunday.